Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Crime and Coffee Couple. My name's Allison. And my name's Mike. Hi, Mike. Hey, Al. How you doing, babe? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Oh, good, good. Feeling really good. Uh, because we just got up uh, from our, our date night last night. We did. We went to Cooper's Hawk yeah, for dinner. Are. When's the last time we had a date? Um, uh, Not too long ago. We went to see Nate Bargatze. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So this was kind of nice getting out of the house, you know? And so, uh, yeah, had had some nice Brussels sprouts. I had steak. You had shrimp and scallops, which was weird because you don't usually order seafood. I know. I was, you know, throwing you a curveball. Yeah. And I ended up eating most of your seafood, I would say. Probably. And, and said, I liked your steak. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. How <laughs> Mike that had a Parmesan crusted steak and it had like this thick layer of delicious Parmesan that I just wanted to like rub all over my face. Yeah, I could tell. And that's why I kept feeding you. I was oh like, my gosh. Another bite, another bite, another bite. It was the best. Yeah. The best thing ever. Yeah, it was good. So um, real quick, welcome to the show. And uh, hey, if you want to support us, uh, we have our Patreon in the links in the show notes, or you can become an Apple subscriber either way. Uh, and there's also a free trial on Apple. So if you're an Apple listener or have an Apple device, you can trial the uh, all the bonus episodes. There are like 40 of them. Yeah, so. there's a lot. Um, give, them a, give them a shout. And then uh, if you don't have the money to support us, then you can always just subscribe to us on YouTube, on any you know, listening platform that you're listening on right now. Just make sure you subscribe. And uh, that way everybody knows, hey, these guys are worth listening to. Yeah, we appreciate it. And thank you guys even just for being here. We appreciate you guys. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what else is going on? Um, I know I mentioned, I think maybe two weeks ago, I had gone to the dermatologist finally after skipping a year. And they did a couple biopsies. And the one on my ear, I just kind of knew it was going to be something. And of course, they called. It's uh, basal cell cancer. So I have to go for a procedure in a little over a week. It's called a Mohs procedure. And they basically take layer by layer off until the margins are clear and the cells are, the abnormal cells are gone. Margins meaning, so they keep on testing and testing each layer until it's like no cancer is seen. Yeah, they're like, just block the day out because we don't know how many layers we have to take. And then I have to come back the next day and have it um, closed, What is what they said. Yeah. And then my back came back as precancerous, so I have to have more taken off there too. So you're going to have craters all over the place. Yeah, just as long as it's taken care of. That's all I care. Absolutely. And it's a good you know, reminder to anybody else out there, go get your yourself checked out it's true because you know you you slack on it like i did and now all of a sudden there's these curveballs but yeah, yeah, yeah what are well, you gonna do hoping for the best so exactly uh, positive thoughts would be very much appreciated yeah thank you guys yeah and, and then um you're a, I, I feel like kind of a schlub over here because i'm wearing like a crappy t-shirt from old navy that i got like 10 years ago uh, you could check us out on youtube and see my crappy shirt and um, you just got your hair did, and you look like uh, very, very delicious. I oh, thanks. Yeah. yeah, I got some uh, length cut off, so my hair's kind of short. I just, you know, it's so much easier to do when it's short. And it was just so funny because when you're getting your hair like colored and cut and highlighted, it's like you're at the salon for a long time. And it was right at lunchtime. And then our daughter was meeting me at the salon to get her hair cut. So Mike was going to drop her off. And I'm like, oh, do you think you can make me a quick salami sandwich just so I'm not starving? And our daughter, Reese, walks in with a cooler, like a decent-sized cooler. And I didn't I know what like, you expect. Like, did you expect a little sack of something, like a brown bag lunch? Like, literally just a, a Ziploc just a, sandwich bag okay. with a sandwich. But it was so sweet. Mike, like, put a cooler together. We were all laughing. And it had, like, a Topo Chico glass bottle. He packed a wine opener for the Topo Chico. I was kind of pissed. You didn't use it. You didn't open it and drink it. Well, I'm drinking it now. You are drinking it So now. you're good. Okay. And chips and uh, what else 
did you put in there? Um, well, I had your little flavor packets that we've mentioned before. Yeah, the dehydrated, like, uh, crystallized fruit you put in your drinks. I had a bottle opener just to make sure you can open that top, Topo Chico. It was very it sweet. It was, like, all thought for. I was, I, thought, I just pictured you sitting there, like... You know, just drinking your little drink and having a good time and chatting it up with the gals while you're like taking out half a mortgage to pay for your house. Yeah, it is a half a mortgage. But the people in the salon were laughing when they saw Reese walk in with a, a cooler. Yeah. Oh. So we'll post a picture because Reese took a picture of me with the cooler at the salon. Ooh, and we have a picture of you uh, enjoying the dessert that we had at Cooper's Hawk. Should oh, we put that too? It was so, so good. It was that like was the awesome. s'mores layered thing. S'mores budino, I believe. Budino. I can't believe, I can't remember anything. Like if I'm, now that I'm 44, almost 45, if you're having a conversation with me, half the time I forget a word or a person's name. Like I'm somebody even as big as like Tom Cruise or something. Yeah, like that. me too. I'm just like uh, that guy that was in Pulp Fiction, and uh, <laughs> you know him. He's like a huge actor. Like everybody, John Travolta. Yes, that guy. So yeah, that'd be that'd be bad. That, that's me. so yeah. The dessert. Oh, like the last thing I needed at the end of that huge heavy meal was a friggin' dessert. But we ordered it and it was delicious. And I came home and I was like, oh, I gotta get my fat pants on. Like a big s'mores in a in a cup. It it was pretty. Delicious. It yeah. was like layered. Yeah. It was really nice. Yeah. So I don't know if you don't have anything else to add. We'll nope. go on and get started here. So I'm going to go ahead and give you guys a warning. This is a really rough case. Um, listen with care. It does involve sexual assault. So this is the murders of Elizabeth Pena and Jennifer Ertman. So it was June 24th, 1993, and two teenage best friends were going to a friend's pool party and they never came home. Their parents told them that they loved them as they parted ways. They expected to see them later that night, never fathoming it would be the last time they would ever see their daughters alive again. So Elizabeth Christine Pena was born on June 21st, 1977 in Houston, Texas to parents Adolph and Melissa. She had a younger brother and sister. This is Michael and Rachel. Elizabeth was described as an extremely sweet girl. She was always smiling. She was a typical teen. She loved to get her nails done, hang out with her friends, chat on the phone. If they weren't together, they were talking on the phone. When Elizabeth met her best friend, Jennifer, at Waltrip High School, they immediately clicked and they were just fast friends. So Jennifer Lee Ertman was born on August 15, 1978, also in Houston, to parents Randy and Sarah. And unlike her friend, she did not have any siblings. She was the only child. She was absolutely the apple of her father's eye. She could do no wrong in her father Randy's eyes. The two were just extremely close. She was described as a funny person who people just love to be around, and she absolutely adored the new kids on the block, much as in the 90s, I think most girls. And like, to some guys, so I did have it written on like a clipboard that I had, NKOTB, <laughs> and uh, that was the same time as Fine Young Cannibals, FYC. I put that on there. I'm so, so embarrassed of it. So but. you like the new kids on the block? Yeah, yeah. And I keep saying the new kids on the block, but it's just new kids on the block. Yeah, well, they were hanging tough, and that they, was pretty tough. They were absolutely hanging tough. Yeah. So Jennifer loved them like many girls did. She had a room full of posters of the group. I mean, I didn't have posters or anything, but that's no. yeah, besides the point. That's okay if you did. So she was a rule follower. She was a great student. Her parents were strict with their rules, but they did trust their daughter. When Elizabeth and Jennifer met, they were a year apart in age, but both sets of families, they absolutely approved of their friendship. They thought they were great together. Elizabeth's father, Adolph, saw Jennifer as a modest girl. She was a positive influence to his daughter. Shortly after they met, Elizabeth's behavior started to improve. She went through just a brief streak of teenage rebellion before she enrolled in 1992 to that school. 
So when the girls were invited to the pool party on the hot summer night of Thursday, June 24th, 1993, 14-year-old Jennifer's dad, Randy, drove his daughter to 16-year-old Elizabeth's house at 4.15 p.m. Elizabeth had only just celebrated her 16th birthday three days earlier. At approximately 8 p.m., Elizabeth's mom and dad drove the girls to the home of their friend, Gina Escamella, who was hosting a gathering at her Spring Hill apartment complex. At this point, Jennifer and Elizabeth had been friends for about two to three years, and their lives were just beginning. Spring Hill, where? what state? They're in Houston. Okay. So as the girls were stepping out of the car, Elizabeth assured her parents that she and Jennifer would be home by their agreed curfew time of 1130 p.m. So they got three and a half hours. Yeah. So not a long time, but they're just hanging out in the summer, cooling off because it was, they said, like exceptionally hot weather at this time. The apartment where the pool party was held was close enough to Elizabeth's home that the girls just planned to walk back. So Elizabeth, excuse me, had recently gotten back from a family vacation in Florida. She loved the beach. So she had an absolute blast. Her dad said he looks back at their drive back to Houston from Florida with such fondness because he remembers specifically looking in the rearview mirror of the car as they drove and seeing his daughter's face and just how happy she was. And really, as a parent, what makes you happier than your child's happiness? Not much. We can all think of little times like that, and it brings Mm -hmm. a smile to our faces. So she had just gotten back. She was excited to catch up with her friends as she showed them what she had also gotten with the money that she was given for her 16th birthday. She had gotten a new pager and some clothes. Pagers are big back then, Huge. man. I never did have a pager. I didn't either. No. Yeah, but uh, you know, you had the, like the little colors and stuff. And, like mm-hmm. I, my brother had like a light blue one. You could like see through. Big times. So as the party went on, the girls were having so much fun that they actually lost track of time, and they're kind of scrambling, thinking, "Crap, we're going to be late for our 11:30 p.m. curfew." So now they're trying to rush. So rather than taking their planned route home that they were going to take on the well-lit streets, they decided to take a shortcut, which would save them about 10 minutes. They would be following the railroad tracks, passing through T.C. Jester Park, which was a mile from Elizabeth's home in Oak Forest. During the day, the park served as a hot spot for cyclists and runners. It was packed with people being active and getting their exercise in. But of course, at this time, you know, it's I'm guessing it's like 11, 11, 15-ish were deserted. It's dark out. So when Elizabeth and Jennifer did not make it home that night, their parents immediately began calling around to their friends. Obviously they knew where they were going to be that night. So they contacted those friends to see if they knew where the girls were. But of course they were told, no, they were rushing home to get there by their curfew for 1130. That's the last time we saw them. So at this point they knew, they knew something must be terribly wrong. So they contacted the Houston police department. They reported the girls missing because law enforcement was inundated with hundreds of homicide cases in the Houston area at the time The search for Elizabeth and Jennifer was delayed. They simply did not have the manpower. So her family and friends there, I should say their family and friends are taking it upon themselves to print their own missing person sheets, disperse them all over and frantically search for the girls. Well, yeah, because anybody can do that, you know, put stuff all over the place. I mean, yeah, that's that's horrible. You go to the police and they're like, sorry, we've got like a hundred different cases. We're currently searching uh, just honestly. And you'd rather hear that from them. Like, honestly, we're not gonna mm-hmm. be able to get to this soon. I'm really sorry. We want to. But, you know, it, where do you place them in order? You know? uh, how do you? Yeah. You know, no, not one human is more important than another, sadly. Yeah. 
So it wasn't until June 28th, which is four days after they left the party, that an anonymous caller came through to Crime Stoppers. It was a man. He identified himself as Gonzalez. And the information of what he said was that he could tell them where to find Elizabeth and Jennifer's bodies. Investigators began searching the area as a helicopter flew overhead, though their bodies weren't found. And he, this Gonzalez that's calling, realizes this, that they're not finding it based on what he's told them. So at this point in time, he called back. He dialed 911. He directed the searchers to the other side of the bayou. He basically said, you guys are looking in the wrong spot. So with this phone call, his identity was actually discovered. The call was able to be traced. Nice. So the information provided on the second contact was correct, and the girls' bodies were tragically found in T.C. Jester Park in a wooded area near the railroad tracks. This was that 10 minutes it was going to save them to get home, and sadly, they ended up being in the absolute wrong place at the wrong time with the horrifically wrong people. Yeah, it sounds like it. Both were partially nude, and because of the extremely hot weather at that point in time, their body, despite the fact that only four days had gone by, they were extensively decomposed at this point in time. So because of that, they needed to be identified with the use of dental records. Holy cow. At the time of the discovery, Randy Ertman, Jennifer's dad, was actually like right over there, and he was preparing to give an interview about the missing girls when the call came through that the police scanner said that they had found two bodies. So I watched the video of the moment he's hearing this. And Randy began to scream at police officers. He's basically running down the hill to where the officers are kind of going towards, demanding to know if one of the girls had blonde hair. Police officers had to hold him back, preventing him from witnessing the sight of his daughter's brutalized body. That'd be so hard to see. Oh, so he, he was stopped. Thank goodness. Both victims had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death. My God. Like, just like you said, you know, going out to a pool party and just happen to take the wrong turn and not even taking the wrong turn, taking the, you know, shortcut. And Mm -hmm. here they are. And they should be allowed to do such a thing and come home safely. Police who were accustomed, you know, this is a kind of a, an area where they're accustomed to a lot of homicides, hence, you know, Jennifer and Elizabeth not even being able to be searched for at that point in time. The backlog, yeah, add them to the list. It's like, so I was going to ask you, is this a pretty bad area? It sounds like based on the fact of what they were saying that they couldn't even get to their search. Are there people online like, you know, when you do these this research, are there people online saying like they should have been walking home? I'm, no, I'm just curious. not that I saw. Of, no, absolutely okay. not. So these policemen and women are accustomed to grisly findings. But despite that, they were shell shocked by the brutality that the girls were subjected to. They were unable to fathom that someone could do such a thing, let alone what they would soon learn was a group of teenage boys. What? Yes. You won't even believe this. I'm not looking forward to this at all. Police turned their attention to the previously anonymous caller who was identifying himself as Gonzalez, but this was actually Joe Cantu. He was a Houston Heights resident. Joe told police that he and his wife were at home the night that Elizabeth and Jennifer disappeared. They were just having a low-key Thursday night. They were watching TV when Joe's 18-year-old brother, Peter Cantu, who lived with them, came home with a group of male friends. Joe said he made the first call after his wife, Christina Cantu, urged him to do so because she felt sorry for the victim's families. She wanted them to be able to recover their bodies and lay their daughters to rest. 
When the group of boys came back to Joe's house, they were laughing and bragging about what they had done to the girls. They also had their jewelry in their possession. Like, what the hell? This is sick. Who brags and like, I mean, one, you're effing sickos and then two like you're laughing and bragging like it's some kind of a you know prank or something like yeah, you absolutely. took people's lives it's insane yep. they thought this was just really funny so peter Cantu was the group's leader of their so-called self-proclaimed black and white gang the other members included 18 year old jose ernesto medina jose's brother 14 year old venancio medina 17 year old Efrain perez 18 year old Derek sean o'brien and 17-year-old Raul Omar Villarreal. The group of six were also with another pair of brothers. This is Roman and Frank Sandoval, but they took off when they began to attack the girls. They never reported what happened to authorities, but they did later testify during the trials. So after Joe made the phone calls to police, they arrived at all the suspects' homes simultaneously. So they arranged that all the police officers were dispersed to each of the six homes, not even homes because um, some were brothers, but that they could not self-report, hey, they're coming for you, run. Yeah. So they did it all in one fell swoop. Smart. So when they found Peter Cantu, he was um, just kind of like laying on his bed in the room and he, in plain sight, had the girl's jewelry right on his dresser perfect, right there. Perfect. So police are like, thank you, dumbass, and you're coming with us. And Derek O'Brien's house was within walking distance to the crime scene. Police found a torn red belt that matched the partial piece that was found near the girl's bodies. Perfect. They also learned that O'Brien had later returned to the scene of the crime. So what happened was when people got word, because it, it was aware that these girls were missing, and when they heard that they had found two bodies in the area, all sorts of onlookers gathered right at the train tracks. So one of the police officers thought, I've heard that people return to the scene of the crime. Take a video and pictures of the people that are gathered there. And there, right in plain sight, was Sean O'Brien. So he came to look to see like what his handiwork was Mm -hmm. as the girls' bodies were tragically recovered. So that was just like a side thing that they had found. So, um, excuse me, do, do, do. Um, They saw him looking there. Okay, so also in addition to Peter Cantu, they saw the jewelry right there on his dresser. They also found a pair of steel toe boots that laid on his bedroom floor. These come back around and what happened to. Great. 14-year-old Venancio was charged as a juvenile, despite being only 14. But as the rest, a juvenile? Okay. But the rest okay. were, um, yeah, I think I, I kind of put the emphasis on that incorrectly, so don't mind me. No, I just want to make sure. So the others, some were under 18. They were all charged as adults. He, being the youngest, was charged as a juvenile. Okay. So upon questioning, the group began to crack, and as many do in a group Thing like this they all start pointing this one did that this one did that and they open open book because you know what the cops are doing they're all saying oh you know what uh, jose just told us the whole story so it, you were, we're only going to let the first three off so right. is it going to be you or is it going to be efren or who is it going to be because mm-hmm. um, you're going to jail either way so you better better you know come up come fess up yeah and i don't know if i specified but the rest that were charged as adults they were charged with capital murder So again, they're cracking, and then the police are soon learning the fates of the girls on the tragic night that they were sexually assaulted and murdered. 
as Jennifer and Elizabeth walked along the White Oak, White Oak Bayou Trail, they were kind of walking and following the train tracks. They came upon members of the black and white gang who just so happened to be holding a gang initiation ceremony for 17-year-old Raul Villarreal. During the ceremony, Raul was to fight each member of the gang in order to be accepted as a member himself. Testimony indicated that he was able to get through fighting three members before he eventually lost consciousness. So this is all happening in that spot before the girls came upon them. So as he lay on the ground, writhing in pain, the gang members went off to the side to discuss if he should be accepted as a member. And minutes later, Peter Cantu told Raul that he was officially welcome to be part of this lovely gang. So this is like a real gang. Uh, They're calling themselves a gang. Yes. I mean, it's 14 to 18 year olds. Gross. So about 40 minutes later, they sat around drinking. And this was the time when Jennifer and Elizabeth just happened to walk past them. Jose Medin tried to grope and pinch Elizabeth's breasts, but she pushed his hand aside and continued on. In response, he put his arm around her neck, threw her to the ground, and dragged her down a gravel hill towards the other members of the gang as she screamed for help. He forced her to remove her underwear. The other gang members indicated that at this point, Jennifer could have absolutely easily run away and escaped, but she chose to stay and help her friend. She couldn't leave her. She couldn't do it. That's nice. So as Jennifer approached the group, Peter Cantu and Derek O'Brien threw her to the ground. And for the next hour, both girls were subjected to a brutal, brutal gang rape. It was one of the most horrific gang rapes that investigating officers had ever seen in the history of their careers. And this is done by teenagers. Absolutely sickening. So their confessions were used during the trial and indicated that there were never less than two men on each of the girls at any given time during their attack. They were absolutely brutalized for an hour. During, I hope they're all like sentenced to death and hopefully dead already, but I'm sure that's not going to happen. During the entire hour of attack, they were being brutally sexually assaulted. There are so many details that I refuse to even talk about on this podcast. They had no remorse. Obviously, they didn't. When they went back to Joe Cantu's house, they were laughing and joking and openly telling Peter's brother and sister-in-law what they had done. I mean, thank God for stupid criminals, man. I say it every time. It's like, you know, you keep your mouths open and keep on yapping about it and how cool you are when you just committed like one of the worst crimes you could think of. The worst, like rape and murder. I mean, mm-hmm. those are those are the two of the worst. And it's just like, you're like laughing like this is like some little thing here. Like, right. I don't know. Like, like almost like you got away with like a speeding ticket or something like, mm-hmm. oh man, I outran the cop. And it's like, you know, this is like a horrible thing. You're going straight to hell. And before that, you're going to, you know, suffer, hopefully. Just awful. And, you know, there's no remorse. One member even boasted of having virgin blood on him. Jesus. 14-year-old Venancio Medine later testified that he had gone back and forth between his brother and Peter Cantu. He, they were the only two members of the group that he really knew. And he kept trying to tell them, let's just go, let's just go. Instead, Peter was urging him to get some. So what does Venancio do? 14-year-old Venancio, he goes on to rape Jennifer. So after an hour that the girl sustained being brutally raped by six men, the horror wasn't even over yet. Knowing that the girls would be able to identify them at this point, Peter, who again is the supposed group leader, ordered them to be killed. 
The girls were taken from the clearing to a wooded area. Area, excuse me. They left Venancio behind because he was too little to watch. Yeah. Okay. Old enough to you know rape and sexually yeah. assault, but not, no. This is where we cut cut it off. Yeah. They very were very responsible. Yeah, really responsible. Raul ordered the girls to their knees, and Jennifer was strangled first. They used Derek O'Brien's belt. Raul and Derek held each end of the belt and pulled with such force that it snapped. And we know that they left the one half at the crime scene. The other half was taken back to Derek's house. Why would you like, keep it? You're so stupid. But some people like I'm, to have that. I'm you only know, trophies. how stupid it is. So this is a horrible, horrible thing. So because the belt snapped, they finished the job using Jennifer's own shoelaces from her purple Converse high tops, as well as strangling her with her hands. And then Jose Medine later complained that the B word wouldn't die and said that it would have been easier had they just had a gun. Meanwhile, Elizabeth was sobbing and begging the group to please just spare their lives, bargaining, offering to give them her phone number so that they could call and get back together again. The medical examiner later testified that Elizabeth's two front teeth had been knocked out by Peter's steel toe work boots that they had found on his bedroom floor before she was then strangled to death with her shoelaces. That's insane. She su- suffered from fractured ribs when she tried to escape while Jennifer was being strangled. Two of Jennifer's ribs had also been fractured and testimony indicated that after they were strangled, the gang members were just kicking their bodies, stomping on their necks to be sure that they were really dead. As they walked away from the crime scene, Peter handed Venancio a cartoon goofy watch that he had taken from Jennifer's body, saying, take this. I don't want it. This was a present she had just been given months earlier by her family at Christmas, and it really symbolizes their innocence and youth. It was this, you know, adorable little Disney goofy watch because she was a 14-year-old girl, the same age as the boy who raped her, 14. It's uh, it's just stories like this like you wish it was just a movie or something you know and just like you can get out of it and stop the movie and just be like this movie sucks but it's like no this is actually somebody's life that this happened to two sweet girls that you know had their whole lives ahead of them like a lot of these stories unfortunately it's yeah just, my brain just saying like stop like stop 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 like it keeps going it gets like worse and worse and worse like where do these people come from how does how, this happen? how do they find each other and that's what nobody could believe when they found these kids and showed their faces like how does evil like this exist how do they find each other and the there's such a sad picture of when randy ertman is near the scene when they you know discover that two bodies are down there and he's sitting on the train tracks right at the spot where his daughter was found like and attacked at that point and he's just sobbing in his hands and you could just like feel his pain just looking at the photo you feel it yeah it's like a gut punch uh, much worse probably oh I mean, my gosh can't even fathom it you just sit there wondering like what's what's life worth living anymore you know like this was my little baby their you know, only daughter apple of my eye their only child everything and like you know everything we wanted to do was for her and now she's gone because these absolute sickening Scumbags. psychopaths like well, how, how are you supposed to keep on living you know you got to go to obviously therapy right away and try to find some kind of solace just so know. painful So after the attack and murder, Peter dropped Jose, Efren, and Raul off at his brother and sister-in-law's house. Christina asked Raul why he was bleeding and why Efren's shirt had blood on it. 
This prompted Jose to tell her that they had fun and they had also elaborated that they had raped both girls. And soon Joe and Christina are seeing the faces of the missing girls on the news and thinking, oh my goodness, they actually did this. Yeah, like they weren't just talking. Like, yes. you know, just like, oh yeah, it's like, okay, you psychos, don't talk like that. And I was like, you did. You actually killed and raped two girls. Like, you did this. We have to turn you in. We have to turn you in. And one of the things said that like Christina was actually scared of Joe. And I mean, for, or I'm sorry for Pete of Peter, of course, because um, he's brother. capable of anything, obviously, like generally speaking, even before this happened, right. she was definitely afraid of him. So when Peter came back to the house, the group is now divvying up the items that they had taken from the girls. Jose took a ring with an E in it so that he could give it to his girlfriend, Esther, when the group left the Cantu home, Christina is then saying, you have got to call the police about this, yep. despite the fact that this is your brother. So the elected district attorney opted to have five separate trials, one for each subject charged as an adult, because we know there were six altogether. So this required five different judges. This was something they had never dealt with before. The same witnesses over and over again, the same police, the same medical examiner, examiner, excuse me. The trials for Jose, Efren, and Raul were held in three separate courtrooms in the same courthouse at the exact same time with different judges and jurors so that the witnesses didn't have to just keep coming back and, you know, prolonging the pain and suffering for the families. So what they did was they divided themselves up in different courtrooms. Like one wife went here, one husband went there, you know, so that they can spread themselves out amongst the courtrooms that were all happening at the same time. So why they decide to charge them all separately is I don't know exactly what that why that decision was made. Hmm. I'm not sure. So gang leader Peter Cantu's trial began on January 31st, 1994. This was six months after Elizabeth and Jennifer were murdered. The trials gained massive media attention that gave a court a circus-like atmosphere. Peter's brother, Joe, was one of the witnesses to take the stand. Jurors were able to see the crime scene photos, and Prosecutor Marie Munier said that she had never seen anything so disturbing, and she remembers seeing the images in her sleep. It was something she just could not get over. Thank God Joe and Christina came forward. They, they probably would have never been caught. Uh, I bet you they would have because they were stupid. And they would have talked. talked yeah. But at the same time, like this is your family. And like if your own family turns you in, then you got to be able like that's a, a great you know, person to bring up and, and you know testify against them. It's like, yeah, yeah, he came in and he was laughing. He's my brother. This is a hard thing for me to do, but he needs to suffer for this. And you got to wonder like what went on in his life to make him such a monster. Like we say, there's a lot of people with a lot of bad stories that don't end up killing and raping people. So I don't know. It's whatever it is. It's like some kind of screw is loose. So it was learned that Peter's life of crime began when he was in only elementary school. He had assaulted a female teacher in elementary school, people. This is fifth grade and under. Nice. And then he bullied her. This resulted in him being kicked out of school. Throughout the trial, he was often seen smiling. I saw these videos. I saw these images. He looked like... In my like view, like he was kind of just going to a picnic in the park. That's like, what he looked like. Like the Joker and Batman just kind of like sitting there and watching, enjoying everybody go crazy. It's just like, man, this he's got to pay. He and especially was it's like this is Texas. I can't I can't see any outcome other than like uh, all of them going getting death penalty. This seeing him smile in the courtroom made my stomach flip. His own lawyers worried about his behavior. He was a loose cannon. 
during his arrest as he was led away in handcuffs. It maybe wasn't even in his arrest, but he's being led around in handcuffs and the media is all around him trying to film him and whatnot. He is violently kicking like a bucking Bronco, like basically taking his arms like in putting them back in people's hands that are holding his elbows and using that leverage to kick up at the media. He's, I mean, a wild animal. Animals don't act like this, let alone human people. Well, the media is probably feeding into it like, oh, you think you're going to get us? And then, you know, trying to get good pictures and stuff. And it's just like, this guy's a loose cannon, like you said. So it was never a question if he would be found guilty, but rather, would he be sentenced to death? Right. So before his sentencing, both sets of parents were given the opportunity to address Peter and Randy, Jennifer's father, um, or I'm sorry, they were, they asked Peter and Randy, why am I saying? Okay, let me rephrase that people. I'm sorry. So they asked the parents if they wanted to address Peter and Randy did agree. So, so he stood up and with a booming voice, this was very powerful to watch. He demanded that Peter look at him while he spoke. Peter, the brother that didn't do it. No, Peter is the criminal. Oh, okay. Peter's the Joe. War- gotcha. Oh yeah. Okay. Joe is the one that Peter's turned his brother in. Sorry. So Peter is the criminal who killed the ringleader who killed his daughter. So Randy is standing in the courtroom and he is screaming because of course this coward is looking down and he's screaming, look at me. And it was an intimidating presence. So this coward, Peter, of course he turns and does look and you know, he tells him you are not even an animal. You have destroyed our lives and I hope to God you rot in hell. And this is interesting. This actually paved the way for future victim impact statements in Texas. Randy was the very first person to ever give a victim impact statement in Texas. Really? Yeah. And I mean, I think that's really important to be able to stand up and say what what you have on your heart. I mean, that's the least you can do if somebody wants to do that, because this person, especially after they are confirmed that you know they're guilty yeah it's like this person took somebody you love's like life and like you can't say something to like i mean they took everything from them yeah, everything that's the least you can do is let them talk to them so during the trial it came out that both girls had tried to unsuccessfully fight for their lives hence these boys coming back with blood on them it wasn't just the girl's blood it was also their blood they fought for their lives and they were glancing at each other in despair while they were being attacked only feet away from each other Oh, it just so, so it hurts my soul to even like, you know, talk about this case, but their story is important. They bit at their attackers. They kicked them. They scratched them. As Elizabeth glanced over and saw her best friend being raped by Efren Perez, she wept with grief for her friend. These two girls loved each other. Hence the reason why Jennifer could have got away and she couldn't. She couldn't leave her friend. How do we know all this, by the way? Because the boys. Told them that. Yes. That sucks. So Peter Cantu, Jose Medine, Derek O'Brien, and Efren Perez, and Raul Villarreal each received a death sentence for capital murder. Nice. This was the most death penalties in a single incident. So wait, all of them? Peter, Jose, Efren, Derek, Raul? Yes. Okay. One, two, three, four, five. So five. five, and then of course we know the 14-year-old can't. Right. So they all received the death penalty. 14-year-old Venancio Medine, Jose's brother, testified against four of the gang members, all except for his brother. He received a 40-year a 40-year prison sentence. <laughs> this is the maximum for a juvenile wow. for sexual assault of Jennifer Ertman. Oh, that's fantastic. Good for them. Good good job on the courts and so, uh, everybody involved. Within 16 months of the horrific murders, justice had been served to all six monsters. Really? All dead? 
No, justice had been served. So everything was closed after about um, 16 months. Because I know the death penalties take a long time. Yeah, they do. And they did. So now in 2005, the Supreme Court banned executions for those who committed crimes while under age 18. Therefore, the death sentences for Efren Perez and Raul Villarreal were automatically changed to life in prison with the possibility of parole. So they are sentenced to death. Now they have a chance to get out of prison. Life without parole did not become an option in Texas until later that same year. So they fell through a loophole. That's crazy how they have like, you think they would have crossed their T's and dotted their I's before they did that. Well, Efren will be eligible for parole on October 10th, 2029. That is five years from now. And you know, there's like the whole state of Texas is going to be there saying like, you better not be getting out. Let's hope. Yeah, I'm sure they won't. Like Texas is a place you can kind of trust that. Like don't F with. Yeah, Your like, people. well, just like, yeah, they're they're going to kind of carry out these sentences mm-hmm. for a while. Yeah. So Raul will be eligible September 20th, 2029. And that is not far from now. And keep in mind, these people were teenagers at this point and they were monsters. Derek O'Brien and Jose Medine were later implicated in the January 4th, 1993 murder of 27-year-old Patricia Lopez. This was not the first time they had done what they had done. That's why they were so, like, laissez-faire about it, you know? Just like, oh, just another one, add it to the list. So what happened to 27-year-old Patricia Lopez was six months before what happened to Jennifer and Elizabeth. The mother of two's partially nude body had been found in Melrose Park and Derek attempted to rape Patricia before he stabbed her in the abdomen, neck and back. It was brutal, absolutely brutal the way her body was found. He gave a taped confession that he was there when Patricia was murdered, but he was too drunk to know who did what. Jose's DNA was a match for what was found on Patricia's body and Derek's fingerprints were found on a beer can at the scene. She was so brutalized that she had been disemboweled found in the park. This was a mother of two young children. These are monsters. Absolutely. They were never charged with Patricia's murder, but her case was factored in to their sentencings at the trials. Good. So Elizabeth and Jennifer's parents successfully advocated for the state of Texas to allow victims' relatives to be present at the time of the executions, because at the time, there was a policy in place that did not allow family members to be there, and they wanted to be there. Like, I can see if they don't want to be there, that's okay, but if they want to be there, man, like, that again, that's the least you could do. These sons of bitches, like, took the life of people. Like, hey, really, anything should happen. As far as I'm concerned, their lives are close to worthless, you know? Like they they thought that somebody else else's life was worthless and was nothing. Guess what? Now yours means nothing. Those girls' lives were nothing to those boys. Now I'm not saying we should kill every single murder or shouldn't. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not strong either one way or the other. But mm-hmm. I'd say this. I'm totally happy with the scenario for Peter here and whoever else. Uh, so Ryan, Ryan, Raul and Derek. Oh, okay. So Derek O'Brien was a ninth grade dropout with a criminal history. Um, we know he was implicated in Patricia's death. He was set to be, he was first, excuse me, to be executed on July 11th, 2006 by lethal injection. He apologized profusely before his execution saying, I am so sorry. I have always been sorry. It was the worst mistake I have ever made in my whole life. And again, this is not the first time he did what he did. He had viciously helped murder another person before. This was Jose? No, this is Derek. Derek, okay. Yes. 
So he said, not because I'm here, but because of what I did. I hurt a lot of people, you and my family. He spoke to the victim's families before being given the injection. He was pronounced dead at 6.19 p.m. seven minutes later. Elizabeth's father noted that Derek's death happened peacefully. He basically fell asleep, and according to him, it happened in about 20 seconds versus the suffering that his daughter was subjected to before she died, being brutally beaten, kicked, stomped on, and raped for over an hour. He got to go to sleep and not wake up. So, you know, as happy as he was that this person was gone from the world, he doesn't find that that was good enough really in a way you could probably take some solace knowing that he was probably scared for weeks and weeks knowing that the date was coming up that he was dead so you know uh if if that makes you feel better and he did he felt better knowing that these people weren't going to be around anymore you never know until it actually happens because with the legal system anything could happen and he said i wish to god that my daughter could have just died that easily put a needle in her arm and just go to sleep i wish to hell he could have died the way that she had died Jose Medin appealed his execution. He said that he was a Mexican citizen and he had been unable to confer with the Mexican, excuse me, easy for me to say, Mexican consular officials. The prosecutor said that he never informed authorities that he was a Mexican citizen. So now he's grasping for straws as it's coming to the end of the line here for him. On August 5th, 2008, his last minute appeals were rejected by the Supreme Court. He was executed at 9.57 p.m., 17 years after Elizabeth and Jennifer's murders, now it's Peter Cantu's turn. Which should have came first. Right. He was executed on August 17th, 2010. When asked if he wanted to make a final statement, he looked up and said, nah. Yeah, that's how seriously he took it. No remorse through and through. Well, it's good that he's gone. He was given the injection at 6.09 p.m. He died at 6.17 p.m. He ended up being on death row longer than Elizabeth and Jennifer even had a chance to live. Jennifer's family said that they were looking forward to his execution, so Peter never had the opportunity to hurt anyone ever again. Randy rejected an invitation from Peter's lawyer to come to his office and read a letter of apology, and he said, it's a little too late, and I told him to stick it. Hell no. Good for him. Oh, Randy. Oh, he was a force (laughs) to be, you know, reckoned with. Well, yeah, you'd killed his little sweet daughter. So in the end, six members were sentenced, three were executed, three remain in prison. Venancio, who was 14 at the time of the murders, has been denied parole on several occasions, most recently in 2020. He has a scheduled release date of 2033, because again, he was given 40 years, which is the maximum that a juvenile could be given. He spoke with the media from prison in June of 2023. It was basically almost 30 years to the day of the murders. He said that night had been the first time he had ever hung out with his brother and his friends. When asked why he didn't leave to get help, he said that he just wanted to be accepted by the group, as well as his fear that the group would then turn on him. He said that when he... Uh, saw the belt go around one of the girl's necks as she was being led away. He was frozen in fear. Looking back, he realizes that anything he has felt since that night is nothing in comparison to what the two girls went through on the nights that they were on the night they were murdered. He expresses his sorrow for what happened. He wishes he could take it back. Jennifer's parents relocated to the peaceful countryside of Lyons. They were eager to escape the constant reminders of the brutality of how their daughter's life, as well as her best friend's life, ended. 
Sadly, Jennifer's father, Randy, passed away from lung cancer on August 18th, 2014 at age 61. A memorial plaque is displayed at Waltrip High School where both Jennifer and Elizabeth were students. There is another displayed in T.C. Jester Park where two granite benches sit with each girl's name inscribed close to where the girls' lives ended. Both girls are buried at Woodlawn Garden Memories Cemetery. They're um, within sight of each other's graves. And every year on the anniversary of their death, where they lost their lives, they do a balloon release to honor the victims. And that is the terribly sad and tragic story of the murders of Elizabeth Pena and Jennifer Ertman. That's really hard. Um, what do you think about Venencio? Um, you know, he was very young. He, he was, was very young. 14. And you can understand a little bit. You know, obviously, you know, he had to go to jail, but you can understand how he was probably scared of Peter. Peter's a loose cannon that would probably kill anybody. Oh, a million times over. And then he, I don't know if he knew his brother killed somebody already. You know, Jose, mm-hmm. um, he probably did because they seem to talk quite a bit. So it's just like these guys. And then they just, you know, I'm sure he just got his butt beat by, you know, one of those guys, Raul or whatever, you know, in that previous thing. Right. So it's like, this is a serious thing for like a 14 year old. Not saying that he's like innocent of anything, but because he's only a few years younger than these guys. Yeah. And it's, that's a big difference, like mentally, mm-hmm. you know, between 14 and 16, 17, whatever, like, yeah. you, you know, so I, I, I hope that he can be rehabilitated. It sounds like he has the right mindset being like, hey, listen, I, I go through hell every day. And it's not even close to what these people mm-hmm. have gone through or the, those poor girls, you know, I, yeah, I hope he can, he can turn out to be something decent. I more. hope so. I mean, he, he seemed very remorseful when he was talking to the reporter that I watched the video of. Yeah. Whereas Peter, you know, go, whatever, go to hell. And I mean, he dead. was, he was a wild animal yeah, yeah, worse than an animal, but they did describe it. Like there's gazelles and lions. If you ever watch a national geographic show, that's basically what these guys were. They were the lions and the girls were the gazelles. They were just vicious animals, these these boys. Yeah. And obviously, it's that that thought process and numbers that there were six of them and they fed off of each other. And, you know, Peter was the ringleader and just so violent and vicious and awful. And, you know, people made comments on Reddit article that I had read that had they been, you know, in just a group of two, odds are it wouldn't have happened. It was that they had that safety in numbers type of group mentality, like Lord of the Flies mentality. Yeah. And people have already murdered within the group. And this was just another murder. And it's just sick. It just goes to show that like, it's just so sad that these little tiny tweaks in our decisions can change our lives. Like had the girls been thought about curfew 15 minutes earlier, they'd be alive today, likely because they would have taken their usual path home and just one little change, like a sliding doors moment and their lives just end at 14 and 16. Oh, it's uh, good that we can remember them, uh, and it's horrible, obviously, that they're gone. And it just sickens me that the two that were, like, up for death row can be released in such a short period of time, in five years. Well, Texans, do your jobs and make sure that they're never released, right? I'd be, I'd be happy if they stayed in prison for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. If you appreciate the effort and time that Allison puts into researching these uh, cases, there's over 40 bonus episodes available on Patreon or Apple subscriptions. So go ahead and check it out. I want to say welcome to our latest Crime and Coffee Couple Club members to Bianca and Anne. And um, if you are a, a subscription, Apple subscription member, then feel free to send us your name and we can shout you out here. If you want to shout out. Yeah. 
Then we'll, go ahead and send we'll it. We'll shout you out. Oh, God. You didn't like that? I Maybe. Oh. Uh, you got too close, I think, maybe. <laughs> you, 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 re- you were enjoying yourself. That's the important I, thing. I had fun. Yeah. And we are the crime and coffee couple, and we're not drinking coffee right now because it's a little bit late in the afternoon here. I know. I'm but. sorry. We apologize for that. And if I blasted anyone's earbuds out of their ears or blasted them out of their cars, my, my apologies. No, no. It's all good. I lost control for a second. Anything else? No. We just appreciate you guys being here. Thank you for listening. And until next time. Bye. bye.